Hello and welcome to uh, the new 12th episode of Spoil Your Rain. This is me, Ben Simmons. And me, Jack Kavanagh. Well, we're going to begin by a quick recap of some of the stuff that's been happening recently in Irish politics and society. And then we're going to move on to a slightly more controversial issue, which is talking about basic living wages or minimum guaranteed payments, social income for everybody. Okay, so let's start with the basic stuff. Uh, We had an election over 40 days ago. We've had a number of show votes, which is what we figured would happen. And we still don't have a government. It's kind of sitting on a stalemate. And it's sort sort of sounds like secondary school gossip, the way it's being discussed. Did they or did they not talk? Yeah, did they pass the note? You know, all that kind of stuff, yeah. So Enda Kenny and Michal Martin will continue to meet and... It's like Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies, yeah. I mean, the problem is, uh, coalition is is off the table. Well, they've said so, so we'll go with that. No coalition means a minority government. By the numbers, a minority government means a Fine Gael one. And it would be probably... No, it would be definitely the weakest minority government in the history of the state because they would be at least 10 to 12 votes short of an overall majority, more like 15, actually, if you do the math correctly, because the vote for Taoiseach is not the same as the vote for, let's say, normal government operations. And the essential one, which is passing the budget. Passing the budget, which has been moved up to October. So that would mean that if the government's formed, let's say, in May then they're only going to be in existence for five months before they have to do this budget. And if they don't do that, then there's an automatic uh, disillusionment of the doll. And then we have another general election. Um, I think that the whole country just needs to get used to the fact that we're going to have a second general election and it's better we get it sooner rather than later because nobody likes winter elections. And sort of some of the talk has been about whether and Kenny will have to go to Higgins to dissolve the doll and call another election. But and will Higgins go along with it? Or will he sort of tell him to go back and try to give them an extension of a deadline, which means go back and try to figure out something? Because the yeah, but like another forty days, though. I mean, that, you know, part of it. You could, like, I would understand that logic if he had gone to the park in March. You know, like literally right after the results, he went, okay, nothing's happening. We'll go, we'll go again in April. And, you know, obviously in, in that context, uh, Michael D would have a perfect reason to say, no, you know, go off and have a chat with the lads and see what's going on. But they've had over 40 days of this stuff and nothing's happening. And, and unlike in other countries, like a lot of people are talking about Belgium and they didn't have a government for 300 days and the civil servants around the country. That is a federated country with a large amount of autonomy in the regions. We are an overly centralized country with a lot of constitutional weight given to the executive. And what that means in practical terms is because none of our ministers or the Taoiseach are vested with so-called constitutional authority to make decisions, it means that they can only operate in a holding pattern. So they can do nothing new. So it's only the stuff that was promised in the last budget. Yeah, it's only on stuff that was voted on already. Okay. So they can't propose new laws. They can't propose new initiatives. If they do do any of that stuff, all of that's subject to court challenge. And the other thing, I suppose, with the increased, obviously, independent vote and alternative party votes is that there's a lot of pressure to introduce a lot of reforms. Like, it's it's become 
like uh, appeal the eighth, um, water charges, and everything's been banded about to to really deal with these. So as it sits now, none nothing is actually going to be achieved until either there's some sort of minority government or the other. But election. like a minority government still wouldn't be able to fix any of that stuff. Because where are they going to get the 80 votes for? You're talking about differing coalitions depending on the vote. So, for example, let's say we had an agricultural bill, right? Let's say that Michael Fitzmaurice and his band of merry farmer lads all got together and said, right, and uh, this is the package we want for rural communities stretching from Leitrim to Kerry, the kind of southwestern belt, and this is going to like boost jobs and help farmers there. That would be a very different coalition to a budget for, let's say, for, sorry, not a budget, for an issue that has to do with Dublin. So Dublin housing crisis, it's different coalitions would be required for, to pass these laws. So you're talking about a sort of minority government with a supply and demand that needs to really stretch across the parties. Yeah. And I don't know if, if our politicians are A, equipped and B, willing to do it. And there has been sort of uh, a couple of interviews with, um, <clears throat> independent or people for profit, uh, Sinn Féin as well, it's like, would you be willing to form sort of a loose voting coalition along with the major party? And really, there's no incentive for... No. To, ba- to back, essentially, the the sort of oppositional mandate that those parties yeah. are I mean, I, I think yeah, RTE have a tendency to be kind of myopic about this stuff. Um a lot of votes that happen in the Dáil are relatively unanimous. And un- uncontroversial. Uncontroversial, bog-standard legislation. Uh, we screwed up and a whole bunch of drugs are legal was the one that happened last year. And, uh, and I think pretty much every member in the House voted to re-criminalize certain drugs. Um, Luke Ming was gone at that point. He might have been a no vote, but he wasn't there. Um, so the, what you have is... Uh, a lot of votes are sort of non-controversial or shall we say common sense. We need to fix this or the minister has forgotten to do something. Could we get that sorted out? You know, that there are going to be... So Sinn Féin would probably disagree quite vociferously with a lot of like Fine Gael's programme. But on sort of honest to God regional issues, they're going to vote along with their Fianna Fáil colleagues from their area. So it's like... It, the quest, the premise of the question is wrong, right? The premise of the question is, oh, you won't support them on anything. Well, that's just stupid. Of course they're going to support them on certain aspects, the non-controversial and the regional parts, because that's how all legislatures are. You know, they're, they're broken down on, you know, different parties will vote together on issues that make sense to individual members. So if there's a bill to do with Donegal, then most of the people who, who are elected from Donegal are going to vote on that issue, right? Yeah. It, that just is obvious they're going to do that. So I don't think that these groups have to necessarily coalesce together into kind of, you know, a left-wing alliance or the rebel alliance, or whatever they want to call themselves. That A, it makes no sense because they vary themselves quite strongly by class, gender, <laughs> region, and so there's going to be that dimension. Um, you know, some of these independent groups are all male groups. And if you notice, some of those rural ones tend to be completely against any sort of repeal the eighth or whatever. I just saw before we started recording, um, the independents have said that they will not support any government that proposes in the program for government to even talk about repealing the eighth. So that's kind of a hard and fast rule that's been put down already. I think since the 
the same-sex marriage referendum. It's quite easy, and I think it's intelligent to do so for a lot of political parties to put that as sort of a referendum issue or a plebiscite issue as opposed to dividing along party lines. Because if you put that in Parliament, I think any advancement would be artificial. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, putting it to a constitutional assembly is kind of Andy Kenny's get out of jail free card. That's what we called it last year. I mean, that's what he does with controversial issues. Oh, the sectarianism in the schools. Well, we'll have to have a constitutional assembly to deal with that. I mean, that's what they want. That's, they just want to farm it out. And it's it's a complete euphemism to call the suspended sentence in Northern Ireland, uh, you know, distasteful. It, yeah. And the sort of the Iona Institute coming out and saying, in some cases, it's justified. Yeah, well, you know, sounding like Donald Trump is never a good thing. No. Agreeing with him is probably worse. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't want to have a whole debate about this. I mean, that's that's a different podcast. And also because we're both guys, I would sooner that there was a woman in the room talking about this because it, it it never is good when it's two fellas talking about this. Do you know it's, what I mean? It's only ever a personal perspective. So it, it the only reason we brought it up is because it actually has a, something to do with the formation of a government. In terms of a potential minority government, uh, due to the instability of such a procedure, the prospect of an election is going to be is is not a matter of months. It'll actually be a matter of weeks, because you know, let's say they get it together in May. The Brexit thing is going to happen in June. I have no idea how that's going to turn out. Um, but let's say they leave and Fine Gael have some policy to, to, to deal with it or they come up with some notion. If they can't pass that notion, then they're going to end up in this situation where really they've been defeated in the doll, but they're still sort of in a holding pattern, you see? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they can reform the doll enough before a second general election. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, like, coupled with a second general election, you actually need a party or multiple parties to go, our constitutional system is not fit for a purpose. The era of majoritarian governments is over. The era of one-party rule has been gone since 1977. We haven't had a single-party majority government since 1977. Uh, Every government since then has been either a coalition or a large party with a sort of supply and demand from some independents. And they have all been unstable. 82, 87 being the two examples of it. So because the bigger parties between them, Fine Gael, Fine Fall, only make up 51% of the overall vote, that means that our constitutional system, which is completely based around majoritarianism, because it's a parliamentary democracy, is actually not fit for purpose. And we're actually going to need to get ourselves into some sort of Republican model, which is two houses that work and a presidency so that we have an executive who is separate from parliamentary give and take. So we can have someone actually running the show. Do you think in the in the Irish case, it would actually be a pretty good idea to maintain essentially whether the, the candidate for presidency runs along a party history or a party line that they actually still yeah i mean do you you, i mean okay technically michael d resigned from the labor party do you genuinely think of michael d higgins as anything other than a labor guy 
I, I, I get your point that there is a certain amount of uh, sort of pomp and ceremony that's completely like it's a facade. It's a it's it's yeah. a it, it 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 is in many ways. It makes the editorial board of the Irish Times very very happy and good for them. But that's not the country. But I still would suggest you'd maintain that regardless. Because the kind of false nonpartisanship. Well, it's not not pretending that they're nonpartisan, but they actually have to leave their party if they if they get not if they get the nomination. Why? Because if it's the sort of an executive singular authority can't be a spokesperson in word for that party, and I think that's important uh-huh. because you know someone like uh, Michael D can say the Labour Party has informed my conscience, but it's still ultimately him who's on the line, whereas. If if someone is, but he's been criticized a lot for pushing the envelope on the. There are maybe the listener doesn't know this. There are constitutional limits on what the president can say. Yes, a lot of them, a lot more than you would see in other systems, um, and he is definitely pushing that envelope a fair bit. Uh, traditionally, uh, let's say back in the seventies and eighties, the president would not speak without running that by the cabinet mm-hmm. uh, i'm pretty sure michael d hasn't run any of that stuff by anybody yeah. i mean i'm sure he sort of gave them the nod going i'm going to talk on thursday but i, I don't think he's been sending over copies of his speeches no <laughs> oh, yeah I don't, I don't you know particularly the ones that are hammering the government for like you know uh, screwing over <laughs> poor people and creating child poverty and you know like he actually has an agenda and that's a good thing right no it's, it is good we want him no i would say the opposite now if sean gallagher got in i'd be banging my head off the wall going why do we have mini trump in the in the in the arachthus or sorry in the aris you know yeah well I, yeah I, I on your point I, I do concede that it's like there's a certain falseness behind it but to actually still be part of that party apparatus as a even if you are in a like in anything but yeah, yeah. your membership card i still think it's it's a good thing I wouldn't say it makes a huge amount of difference, but I think it's important that that difference is still there because it's it just means I think Higgins like he was he was criticizing the government government with a quite a large until recently labor part of it part of it yeah. like they were the coalition partner and if he were a more active party contributor would that perhaps make him more. I mean, he was never or really, less likely to criticize. But like, that was he, he was he was never particularly go along, get along. No, no, he his character is quite individual. That he yeah. wasn't. Yeah. I mean, we've had go along, get along presidents. We've had ones who aren't as well. I mean, we we've had a we've had a mix of presidents. Um, yeah, I mean, broadly, I I would agree with your point. I think whether or not they are resigned and technically independent or not, they're going to be informed by what they're going to be informed by. Yeah. And pretending otherwise is sort of silly. I mean, yes, people, we can do it. It's fine. I mean, you know, people lie to themselves all the time. I mean, this like, is true. You know, that's totally legal. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, uh, I would prefer an executive presidency. I've I've always thought that was a much more logical sense because actually the, the guy running the person, sorry, not guy, the person running the government uh, is not subject to kind of the kind of backroom political maneuverings. Um, and also if you limit them to one term, if you say you have one seven-year term as president, off you pop, no. you know, and then you stagger the elections for the for the doll and for the Senate so that 
you get changes within that. And if uh, the president wants a bill passed and he can't get it passed, well, that's how it is. And if the government, and if he doesn't like the budget, he can veto it. I mean, this isn't, you know, conflict in government is viewed by our political establishment and of course our our secret overlords the civil servants as a total bad thing right they go no no it has to work efficiently it has to work on time well no because our version of efficient government leads to really crappily drafted laws like the first iteration of the irish water bill actually was just badly drafted and by that i mean it was badly written uh, this is the same, you know, the finance department got the national debt wrong twice. They miscounted 3 billion euros. If I had done that, I would have been fired. That guy got promoted. Um, you know, like who, are we, like, who are we kidding here? Yeah. So, you know, stopping, having a bit of conflict in your government stops bad things from happening also stops good thing from happening i'm not going to say that you know conflict is necessarily great it's not but uh stasis um is not necessarily the worst thing in the world well slogans like party of government i've always found creepy disturbing it's kind of like oh so the other guys are there for show it's there so you can have a good laugh in parliament kind of it's yeah well it's just also just preening kind of arrogance yeah, you know it is yeah yeah, well, that, it's the Tories. I mean, that's what they were all... I mean, that's why they got kicked out Yeah, in 1997, because people had enough of them, you know. I would like to see more conflict in our system. It's funny, if you read our papers, and if you were from Mars, right, and you read Irish papers, you would think that we had a totally partisan, polarised electoral system. And it could be further from the truth. If you watch the doll, which I have, because I'm one of the 10 people who watch that, you know, the live telly thing. Um, not this session, but previous sessions, when, they actually, when there was a government last time, it was all grand. It worked. They guillotined bills through. They rammed legislation through. There was no debate. There was no nothing. It was democratic, kind of in inverted commas, but things were happening. It was a dynamic government. I didn't like a lot of what they were doing, but you can't, you couldn't criticize them for being inefficient. Like they got legislation through the house, but it was not debated and there was no oversight whatsoever. So, you know, for me, it's like, pick your poison. Do you want uh, a parliamentary system that can and does have the ability to pass enormous amounts of pieces, very large pieces of legislation without any debate drafted at three o'clock in the morning by some guy you've never heard of and if they make a mistake they get promoted mm -hmm. or do you want a process that is slower much more fractious where people will actually fight about what's in the bill and the government is can lose votes well you, you mainly also want to introduce sort of loosening on the issue of speaking rights you also want to really start hammering the whip system a little bit although that one i you know the funny thing about that, I've, I've always had a weird view of the whip system the whip system is a party system right so the whip system is not necessarily enshrined in standing orders so uh it's just a brief i'm going to do this very briefly our parliament is governed by two sets of standing orders the standing orders for the doll and the standing orders for the senate and they're decided by the members of both bodies, right? So they create their own rules for themselves. 
which is how it's done in most uh, legislators, with the exception of the German one. They've actually set rules in their constitution to prevent certain um, parliamentary things from happening, but they have historical reasons for doing that. The Enabling Act probably being the best example of why they did that. Um, you can Google what that is for the younger listeners. Um, the So our standing orders do not say that the whip system has to be a three-line whip, which is the whip basically if you break that, you get kicked out of the parliamentary party. There's That is nowhere listed in the standing orders. That's a private party matter. I don't think the state has a role in governing individual issues within parties. The gender quotas are different because they're funded by the taxpayer, and that's about representation. I actually think we need to go a lot further than gender quotas. I actually think that all parties in receipt of public funds must reflect the census. That makes much more sense, really. It has to reflect the census. So that means that 51% of them must be women, whatever, 1% must be a traveler. You know, all of the kind of subgroups get some representation within a publicly funded political process. But when it comes to the web system, the thing is, look, if you sign up to the party, that's part of the deal. You know, if you and I set up, you know, the monster raving loony party for Ireland and we had a three line whip and someone joined our monster raving loony party and they did not agree with us and we kicked them out. Well, we're allowed to do that because it's a private function. I suppose I would like when you sort of explain like that, I understand why you wouldn't want to create legislation really to limit what parties can and cannot do because there's something quite you make a choice to join yeah you yeah. make a choice to join the party and yeah. you kind of you accept the the, the terms rules. and conditions yeah, that exactly. may apply yeah so I, I get that point i guess the difficulty i have in certain issues is when they are particularly divisive sometimes it can be very unreflective like you're trying to put in sort of the reflection of the demographic highlighted in the census but if you were to look at that in terms of opinion on certain sort of niche issues mm. if you're to take that logic to but that would be legislating for taste though. yeah i suppose in some way i mean like yeah obviously it would yeah i i mean this comes around with the so-called conscience issues right and i call them so-called because i i i think i think it's wrong to state that solely when it comes to life, right? Which means the right to die and abortion, that legislators should be able to get this opt-out from the whip system while in national budgets, which have caused real and present harm to children and people in need and all that kind of stuff, that that is not an issue of conscience. That's just bullshit, sorry. Yeah. Uh, they're both affecting human beings. It's like life is politics yeah, in that you, sort of way. You, you can't, can't, you like, can't subdivide. Well, money, into, you know, whether you're in a house or you're living in a shed. Like they, the government's decisions have real impacts on people's lives. You know, it's a con to say, no, only these two issues that are that I'm coming from a religious perspective uh, matter is conscience, while a budget budget is just the business of government. Well, sorry, no, it doesn't work that way. You know, you can't pick and choose. If you're going to make a moral argument, you either have to be completely consistent or just say, well, I'm not. I'm a pick and choose guy on that one, you know. And if you want to say that, that's fine. But I don't accept it as a conscience, that, that whole conscience argument. I never have, really. So if, so if you're you sort of brought up... Um sort of how 
political decisions, regardless of whether there's something sort of a conscience issue or social legislation issue. And I use that very loosely. But if we sort of use that to sort of segue into the next topic that we wanted to bring up, which is the idea of, I suppose the budget's a great place to start. Um, recent reports on studies on inequality in Ireland and larger studies really worldwide, worldwide have shown that sort of the gaps in income and inequality, whether you're talking about um, sort of this, the sort of the one percent argument, or the the isolation of resources in particular ownerships, like whether it's a private citizen who owns a disproportionate or earns a disproportionate amount of income in relation to what would be considered the the other ninety nine percent. Well, it'd be like a factory owner who earns five hundred times their workers. Yeah. So when we talk about these inequality things, a lot of the time we 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 sort of we never really tackle the issue properly. Uh, no. We we have a certain amount of public programs that everyone's familiar with: social welfare, pensions, whether they're contributory, non-contributory, the safety net, widows, basically. disability, medical care. This the, these sort of the the public safety net, the the welfare state as it's branded. Um, really. One of the difficulties you've had since the 80s, I, and this is not my own research, this is just a variety of opinions that have really started, I've started to kind of take more interest in, is that there was, the big call for privatization had an effect, both good and bad. The privatization of services made some services actually last and become profitable and generate jobs and employment for people. Mobile phone networks being a big one. Yeah. Uh, the difficulty is that I think that a lot of people kind of forget is that when a government asset is sold, so say you privatize certain sections of motorways to sort of Depending. maintenance companies. Yeah. So they, they handle the tolls and um, think about um, the Lewis being run by a private company. That's something that's really come to the fore now. now. It's, yeah. it's current now. Uh, and you talk about privatization of schools. Uh, Medical schools and things like that. And and then you talk about sort of medical services. Now, a lot of people kind of think of on a day-to-day basis about privatization, whether they're for or against it. One of the things that is not discussed really or presented, I think, is that when a government sells what is an asset, so like say a mine, they hand over, you know, a zinc or copper mine to a private company. The private company don't necessarily... They they just they just take over the actual extraction of that resource. That is not a fair sort of translation to what is actually going on. Because what is actually going on is the government is selling its rights to an asset, a national asset that is part of the country. And it doesn't belong, I don't mean to the government as in the, the politicians and civil service no, that are there. The it belongs to the country. It is the asset of this ev- everyone. Everyone in the state. So the idea is that you hand it over to this private company. And they take over and make it more profitable with the idea that it provides better employment and, and is you more tax the profits and, and you t- bring some back. Yeah. yeah, but the difficulty is a lot of these infrastructural services or national services required a huge amount of investment in their inception. So when a government, say, 20, 30 years ago, were talking about the value of that asset, they were also talking about the debt that was taken out 
To make it. To make it. And when private companies take over, they are not in any way taking away from that actual government debt. The government might get a windfall from the sale of the asset, but that is no way looking at the actual assets that are lost. Mm -hmm. So that means when a government goes to borrow again, and it's looking at its list of assets, you're, it's more dependent on a ta- the taxes and incomes than it, is on the assets. Th- than it is on the stuff that it actually owns and holds and looks after. Mm-hmm. So you have an increasing, increasing public debt, which is essentially only only way it can pay for it is by taxes. And one of the things that the kind of the loss of state assets does. Now, I'm not saying everything should be nationalized in some sort of no. you know a completely public. Well, economic that doesn't system. Work either. No, it doesn't. And um, but the difference. Cuba, I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, it's also it gives it may, it cripples the ability for governments to really actually tackle things on a major scale. Whether it's infrastructure, but the other major thing is inequality, or you know, poverty. Well, we used to be, we used to, we used to call governments. You know, governments work for the betterment of people. Right. That's now a cliche. Right. And it's been made a cliche by our media system who have contributed a fair bit to the unbridled hatred you see now of government. Like the media have a huge responsibility for that because they have embraced a cynical quid pro quo view of politics that's kind of filtered down because people read media and then absorb it. Not all of it, but enough of it. Um. But they seem to have lost the track. I mean, governments are made up of people, right? We are not members of the government, you and I, but we are citizens of this country. The government is an extension of us. You know, this disconnect, when people say, oh, I'm running against the government. No, you're running against individuals in a government, but you're not running against the state. You're in the state. You're like sort of running against a current trend in political or social thought yeah yeah exactly which is you know affects policy i know but the problem is you can't get that in a bumper sticker no you can't it's you know like (laughs) if you start to try to explain anything in a long-winded way like even i get bored like when yeah yeah it's like get to the point yeah like what exactly is it you're saying like uh, i remember the 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 sort of the sort of the mocking tone at which people, well, rightly, I think so, like even like every journalist would say, you know, the way Fine Gael were talking about fiscal space was, like, it was sort of going, and what exactly is that? Are you just using like a sort of a pro-semi-finance word to disguise what you're talking about? Yeah, f- fiscal space is like one of those great, it's one of those great <laughs> economic phrases that just sort of means nothing. Like um, the fundamentals of the economy are good. Remember Brian Cowan kept saying that as the economy was literally collapsing around him, he, the fundamentals of the economy are great. It's like, <laughs> what? Um, the, but going back to the, the, the inequality, okay, that's not a term I particularly like no. because it actually disguises the problem. Uh, and just to go back to the proviso you said, which is be simple. Here's the simple part of it. Uh, we are experiencing deindustrialization. Heavy industry jobs are being moved to low-pay countries, predominantly in Asia, and starting to be moved to elements of Africa that are relatively stable and able to cope with that. One of the things you're going to see in the U.S. context is, to date, uh, one of the 
recipients of employment was Puerto Rico. Now, Puerto Rico are going to start to become very, very nervous because Cuba... Huge debt crisis. No, but Cuba has also opened up. So the new destination for American labor will be... Cuba. Because they are going to be opening up their economy for the first time. And... Um, and the privatization will begin. <laughs> oh, privatization will begin in uh, with uh, with aplomb. And I think the other thing is, one of my um, friends recently said, like he wants to go to visit before everything goes to shit. Yeah. Now, of course, like the Cubans have had to live a much more frugal, frugal existence. <laughs> frugal. And, uh, sorry, that is not a mocking laugh. That's just a kind of like that's a factual the euphemism yeah, yeah. of saying frugal in that yeah. instance, but. Yeah, the Puerto Ricans will be quite nervous, I think. When well, I mean, it's also that Puerto leave. Rico is as close to bankrupt as you can this get. This is true, yeah. um, And also Puerto Rico, because it's not a state, it's in that weird place with Guam and other sort of U.S. territories. And is it a territory? It's a territory. I mean, that and their citizens, but, you know, that's a whole other problem that needs to get fixed. Mm-hmm. Uh, next president, obviously, because, you know, I mean, if Obama tried to get Puerto Rico's statehoodness, you know, he would be told, well, you know, you know, Republicans have developed a new rule, which we'd never heard of before. They've been doing this a lot. New rules that we've never heard of before until a Democrat got in office. Did you now know that when Democrats were in office, they only can serve seven out of the eight years? <laughs> <laughs> they only get a seven-year term now. Yeah. The eighth year is is just for show, opening things and having garden parties. Yes, indeed. Um, so, the lame duck year. Lame duck year, exactly. Yeah, that, that'll be the new one. Well, he's putting a little bit of a challenge on that, i got to say. I think you push him back. You kind of have to. Oh, course um but yeah so he, he's in seven year democrats only can serve seven years anyway uh, as long as republicans are in charge <laughs> um the the thing about deindustrialization is it's not going to stop um until the countries that the jobs are going to uh develop like you know labor unions and start asking for more money and, and no longer want to live on a, a dollar a day, right? Uh, when their economy is growing enough that they can demand more and all that kind of thing. Um, and also when they get some, you know, like not dictatorship kind of governments running the show, that would be helpful too. Um, so that's about 50 years away. So in the intervening 50 years, we're going to have to do something because we, we can't wait that long. If you waited that long, you would have Donald Trump's elected running in a straight line from Poland to Canada because the deindustrialization is happening in what we call kind of very arrogantly the Western world, right? Because that was the, these were the pinnacle economies post-Second World War. Even the communist ones in comparison to these, the, the smaller sort of third world, well, third world economies as we used to call them. Developing, developing now, yeah. Um, so well the catch in the second world war obviously was the fact that huge amounts of wealth and assets were literally blown up that was helpful <laughs> yeah but so governments representing people are going to have to make decisions about their economies since the heavy industry is being moved away that leaves farming right which we do we do well agriculture we do well in that in this country um manufacturing is also being swiftly moved 
um, and then the services sector, which is this kind of nebulous term. And the services sector stretches from financial the advice. Tertiary industry. Yeah, yeah. It, that stretches from financial <laughs> advice to fast food workers. So, like... I don't know how you put that in as a sector. You know, now there's like the fourth sector, which is I think what Silicon Valley called themselves to make themselves feel better. Um, I don't know what that means either. Because they do manufacture, they do research, but they don't. They're not a raw materials on a. Yeah, but they're like you know, they're like Ford. I mean, they're, they're really not a. You know, like Apple is very similar to Ford. They make stuff. The thing where we're essentially trying to get around to discussing is the idea that's been brought up as a way to. To counterbalance the the changes, these changes in sort of really income inequality, uh, and in supporting a transitory labor force. I mean that that's why I that's why I kind of did that sort of broader context because those type of jobs, heavy industry manufacturing jobs, you tended to do them for life, right? Not always, but you tended to. You get a longer contract. You do 20 years on the line. That was always the way it was talked about, right? Uh, you, you get paid a good salary. Uh, you, you know, bought your house in the suburbs. You paid it off after 20 years. You got good benefits. Hunky-dory. And then your kids went and worked in the manufacturing plant or in the mine or whatever. And this is, of course, a slightly romanticized in summary view, but you yeah, get yeah. the... No, no, well, yeah, of course, yeah, good, yeah. but like it happens. <laughs> yeah, no, no, there were stable employments. Yeah, stable that. employment. It wasn't like fun, No, but it was stable. Um, in 1952, I just saw the statistic last night, the average factory owner in America earned, this is the factory manager, not the owner, said manager, earned twice the amount of the guy working the line. That has now gone to like four or 500 times. And even when you think about sort of the high-level administrations of what would be traditional union positions in, in in comparison to the workers that they're representing. And of course you can say that... And actually know, here's an example know. that's recent and current. Uh, Transdev, for those who don't know, are the operator of the Lewis and Transdev have not released their salaries of what they pay their employees. I'm not talking about the Lewis drivers. I'm talking about internal to Transdev, a private company. But you can look up online. There's a couple of websites, Glass Ceiling and a few others, that sort of list salaries. People who went through these companies will say, oh, I earned this and this and such and such a job. And I saw one uh, a couple of days ago that sort of took my breath away. A HR manager working for Transdev earned £66,000 a year. You know, that's about 82,000 euros a year. This is a HR manager. This is not someone who drives a train or a bus. This is someone who sits in an office and fires people. And they're earning two and a half times the starting salary for a driver. Now, the argument being here in these situations is that that person probably had to go and receive three years plus of training and experience before they were in any way, shape, or position to get that job. But really is one of the questions you got to ask is, well, like, the I, driver, I, I take that argument. Oh, no, that's, yeah, a, that's no. a fine argument. But so pay him 40 then. Yeah. <laughs> so they're still earning more, but it's not like disproportionately more. Like there's nothing wrong with graduated salaries. I'm not saying that everybody's got to earn like the same amount of money and we're all like communists, you know, eat your bowl of, bowl of cashew and shut up. Yeah. Like I'm not interested <laughs> yeah. in like, you know, 
the Mao school of economics. All I'm saying is the, the, the levels of pay have to be somewhat within the realms of reality. And, you know, what kind of company is that to work for? Like how, like that, that actually, for me, when I saw that, I was like, psychologically, if I was working for that company and I had to deal with management who I knew were earning this disproportionate salary to the work that I did, I would feel a certain chip. Yeah, of course you would. Of course you would. Uh, and I'm sure people in the HSC who clean the toilets and are trust, or you know, people who go around and they're cleaning up in trauma wards or whatever, I'm sure they're getting paid peanuts, you know, in comparison. In comparison. Now, obviously, you know, I personally believe that we actually should pay cleaners a hell of a lot more than we do because uh, hygiene. It's extremely important. It's the one, one of the main reasons we live longer is because of good hygiene. And nobody really thinks about it, but, you know, we need clean streets, you know. We need clean hospitals. We need clean schools. Pay them. I don't care what they want to pay them. I mean, the same goes for sort of public service positions such as what guards are paid versus guards, ambulance drivers, in comparison to their administrative counterparts. Yeah. That, I mean, is, that, that is a, that, like, yeah. Why are people in the Department of Justice paid more than a guard and a beat? That makes no sense to me. And it's also, it's more troublesome because guards are constitutionally barred from going on strike for obvious reasons. But if, if they're constitutionally barred from going on strike, and if they work a job, which we, we all know is both dangerous and more likely, you're, you're not going to last very long in it. You know, the average retirement, I think, is like is 18, 19 years in the job. It's not that long. Like, you know, it's not a 30, 40 year gig. Like, you're not there that long because it's stressful. and People want to get out. You know, it's got high turnover, basically, is what I'm saying. Take the money from the person working in the office and give it to them. Like, it's funny when people say, like, whenever we people talk about wages in this country, they're like, oh, where's the new revenue going to come from? No, we're not talking about new revenue. We're talking about redistributing the revenue we're already paying out here. Yeah, it, it sort of especially makes sense in terms of, I think, government. And of course, like that, the argument has been that high level government positions need to be competitive salary wise so they get the best person for the job. You know what my, oh, yeah, go on. I'll let you, I'll let you counter at that. Yeah, but, I will. Uh, and I see the point. There has to be obviously incentives for high level jobs with have high responsibility yeah. and consequences. Yeah. But the th many thing, you know, the things the, as actually the bank inquiry is a great example. It could not point fingers too closely, but it did point to negligence bad communication between departments that were the fault of highly paid, highly qualified individuals that there was no real sort of, there was no justice found for that. I'm not saying necessarily prison sentences, but definitely you can talk about fines. Yeah. Yeah. And okay, you talk about the same. Or at the very word, at the very least, a bad job reference. Yes, at the very least, a bad job reference. <laughs> also when you look at the comparative risks that someone like a guard or an ambulance driver and while that is very easy to paint as okay someone gets injured by an ambulance driver or a guard and it is their fault because they are being negligent right that guard would go through a lot more trouble or that ambulance driver would go through a lot more trouble than any of a superior government administrative member I of course imagine. they would yeah they would be put through the ringer because it's it's something that's very easy to sell 
because it's also public trust. Yeah, they have. Pu- they're going to damage public trust. They, they are going to damage yeah, public so trust. So they got to make the public trust them again by putting these guys to the ringer. And that's why actually, although government trust in the guards has fallen a lot lately, um, individual guards, from from what I know myself, are are held in fairly high regard. The system is held in pretty bad regard. And that's kind of replicated across. But the other reason that the mercenary aspect of this, right, this came up with the uh, some senior people for the Department of Finance. Um, the argument made by Michael Noonan was, well, we need these senior people. Uh, we need to pay them, I think it was like a quarter of a million. It was just, it was crazy money. You know, it was more money than I'll ever see in my lifetime. And... The argument was, well, we need to, you know, attract the best talent and we need to get these people. And and not to sound like a nationalist, but, you know, what about patriotism? You know, like, it's it's your country. Sort of an advocation for <laughs> You live here. You, you live here. You, you are reaping the benefits of a state built by people who you've never met before, who pay taxes and live in a country and helped create one. Um, and you are reaping the benefits, whether they be educational or whatever. And uh, you owe something. Sorry. Yeah. You know, like if there were if there was a job going in uh, my field, which there probably isn't. But if there was an advisor position for a historian and they said to me, you know, we can only pay you the same as the dole. Well, I would do the job because A, I'm a patriot and B, I'd be interested in it. My interest in the position, my intellectual curiosity would overwhelm any kind of grubbiness about cash because my life is not driven by the pursuit of wealth, right? And maybe I'm just sort of on my own there as like, you know, another old lefty. But at the end of the day, why don't we want people who are idealists instead of people who are interested in buying a yacht? Another thing to support that is... um Hajom Chang, if I'm getting the pronunciation of that name wrong, I apologize. But the book is 23, 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism. And that is just like sort of a bestseller economics for base, you know, standard people. And one of the interesting arguments, actually, some of the book I wasn't that interested in. But one of the things that he did talk about, which was quite funny, was, you know, LG, the, the, the electronics, electronics company. company. Originally, that was supposed to be... Um, sort of a cop, copy of Japanese steel companies and to manufacture steel in, I forget Korea. what it is. I'm is not it Korea? Sure. Is it? No, I'm not too sure which country. Like, I know the details are slipping out here, but the example essentially is, is that it was kind of a government decision by non-specialists to go into electronics. Yeah, good idea. And so the argument that only specialists will make good decisions the financial crisis is an example that those highly paid specialists probably have. Um, yeah, it's Korean, South Korean. Yeah, South Korean, sorry. So having to sort of. The EU they're is less the, likely yeah, to fail. But the EU is dominated by people who fit that category. Very well paid, very well qualified technocrats. And their economic theory of the case has been proven to be wrong. Uh, wrong on not only the fiscal case, but also on the structural case, because the structural decisions that they have made have led to a situation where trust in the EU is at an all-time low, and the structural stability of this union that's been a 50-year project is is at a very shaky point. So 
you know, you got to look at the people responsible. Sorry. Um, but yeah, no, I, I really do feel that that is a really terrible argument. It just doesn't it doesn't wash with me. This idea that we have to pay these people these fabulous salaries. It's like, well, well you know, why don't do it? Because you, you want to do it. And it's like these gigs aren't long term. These, these tend to be kind of short-term advisory positions. I mean, some of them are more permanent, but a lot of these are like two to three to four years. And because our generation tend to be more transitory, you know, and we also tend to be one of the most highly educated parts of this society, right? Because we went through the education before the education cuts came in. So a lot of us got out with master's degrees, just about. Um, uh, which was paid for by the state. So we were the benefits of free education uh, for, for uh, degrees and some of us for, for masters. And we owe something. Yeah. And that should be something along the lines of public service. But it, but it should service. be a no-brainer. Yeah. And again, maybe that sounds more idealistic, but why not? Yeah. I've benefited from being a citizen of this country. I've benefited from the sacrifices of people I've never met before. Therefore, I should give something back. And, and not I'm, just, not, I'm not yeah. talking about just like a charity thing, right? No, no. I'm talking about an actual, I'm going to do this job, I'm going to do whatever it is. It makes sense. Like, like it used to be, like in many countries, it was mandatory military service. And some countries have expanded that to be... National service man, in yeah, general. Na mandatory national service. And those kind of programs, not for a huge amount of time, but definitely the idea of public service being a good thing and something that everyone does, I think can be quite... If you're important. I think it's it's more than just that it's important. It also it creates a more uh, refined understanding of how the state works and of the interconnectivity between individuals. A lot of arguments made about income are that person's getting something that I don't get, therefore I'm against it. It's adversarial. Well, well, they're they're considering the fact that they pay for it, and a lot of the time is. But that argument never works for me. Yeah. I'm paying for that. I don't want to pay for it. Well, we're all paying for it. Yeah. We're all paying for it, chum. It's okay. It's a collective decision. We live in a collective country. You know, like income taxes does not bring in that much more than VAT. So it's not like the whole country is paid for on income taxes, right? Um, now, the government doesn't like to mention that fact, but we do have one of the highest fat rates in the world. And that affects everybody. And it actually disproportionately affects the bottom 20% because they have less disposable income. So taxing them at 23% is going to affect them a lot more than Bono. Especially Bono, since he moved his... <laughs> Didn't he, yeah, is he in the Panama Papers too? Uh, no, he's not. No, he's not. Oh, no, 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 no. He, we don't know that he's not in the panel. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the be better. We way. don't know. Yeah. But like one of the other solutions that is talked about, and I think when you're talking about sort of wage equality and you're talking about the, the top end, a lot of people kind of include themselves in that top 1%. It's the voting above. Yeah. You vote with the rich guys, yeah. So it tends to be the people who are earning, what is... A normal middle bracket salary or what is normally considered to be a middle bracket salary is they vote traditionally along with the person who's earning a million like, a million or a million plus and i'll code that is a very small amount of people comparatively in a population but that's who they vote with because they consider themselves to be above people who are at a lower income threshold even though they have more economically in common. With yeah, them. they have much more economically in common. And like one of the solutions that has been posed, and some countries have tried it in some shape or form. Now, we spend 
What's, what was the total figure that we the talked t- about for social welfare? This total for the social Department of Social Protection is nineteen billion. Nineteen billion. Well, one of the as I said, one of the solutions, at least to address, um, and it was actually it was actually advocated by Friedman. Funny enough, um, is a national sort of income for every citizen. Yeah, the basic and that, salary. And what. Um, <clears throat> And Willie O'Dea was the one who pushed this. And Martin Luther King suggested, like he, he, one of his quotes is, the, to combat poverty, you have to get it at source. And to do that, you essentially have to start providing a living salary for people. Mm-hmm. Now, this might just be essentially what would be considered for many people who are working tokenry, like something equivalent to current job seekers' benefit. Yeah, so, so uh, well, of, yeah, go between like well, it's 188 right now. So w- because there hasn't been an inflation jump on that in a couple of years, you, you're talking basically 200 euros a week, which is about 10, which is 10,400 euros a year per person. Per person. So that ca- comes in at around our figure of 41.6 billion. Billion. Now, for a lot of people who might have heard that number, that might have gone like, isn't that kind of close to our entire national budget? For those of you shouting at the at the speaker, we know. We understand. <laughs> it's a lot of money. But there actually are benefits to it, I think. Um, uh, it's also the fact that uh, we will actually not be handing out $41 billion because the way the tax rates would work is uh, most people, it would just be taken back in taxation. It's again, it's a token payment, but it's also designed for, so let's say you were, wanted to go on paternity leave. Paternity, I said that specifically, right? A man wanted to spend time with his small child. Uh, That person could apply for the leave. And instead of the state covering the the, the payment, right, which happens in some cases. Sometimes it's the employer and sometimes it's the state. You will just have this 200, right? So you won't be taxed on your weekly rate. You'll just have this 200 coming in and a bit of extra cash for you and you can spend some time with your child at home. And then when you go back to work, the thing disappears because your tax rate's just eliminated. So it, it's basically, it's the way Willie O'Dea talked about it was eliminating all of the payments, of which there are lots of them. There's a myriad of different payments, all of them at slightly different rates, and they're all some of them are just um, historical. They're there for historical reasons, right? Um, you know, the deserted widows allowance and things like that. You know, like they would be covered by a general allowance. You don't need to create a specific one for a specific case. You know, dole for farmers, that kind of thing. You don't need that anymore. There, there, there's a lot of historical payments in there. Mm-hmm. And for the instance, like you, if you do it for the whole population, you do something like... But also along, you get rid of all the tax yeah. breaks. Yes, you would get rid of all the tax breaks. The arguments against it would probably boil down to what we were talking about earlier, which is that some people will just say, well, some people can, are just going to sit around and not work. Well, there's like there's some small ways you can combat that. In, like we were talking about the yeah. idea of sort of creating... And I'm not talking about sort of like a mandatory employment... Because that's there was actually labor, there, you know the, the other thing about I was gonna I forgot to talk to you about it before we were recording but I'm gonna bring it up now was in the seventies uh, in the United States Hubert Humphrey uh, who was a senator he was then LBJ's vice president he famously lost to Nixon by a very small margin in 1968 and he returned to the Senate he's from Minnesota and he was a kind of great social Democrat 
and he had this idea of the permanent, it was the law called the permanent employment. And it basically said that the employment, unemployment level was never allowed to like go beyond 1% or something. And any time it went beyond that, there would have to be a huge public jobs program to kind of eliminate unemployment, right? You could do a similar thing in coupled with this, where you could say the unemployment rate will basically no longer make any sense because there will be no unemployment, technically. Technically. Um, and what you could do is you could sort of create you would take, basically take the kind of volunteerism and the charity work that happens now and you'd be paying people for it. So it's not like, you know, a lot of people who's, who are on the dole now, are, are they're not just like goofing off. They're doing stuff. They're taking part in their community. They're being involved. And you would then be just paying them to be, be involved. Yeah. They would be getting an income support to do this. Whether it's volunteering their local community development or center. Or GA. You know, GA, GA. No GA player is paid. Yeah. Suddenly every GA player would be paid. Yeah. This small payment. But they would all be paid, you know. It would mean that if a GA player wanted to take a year off and coach a team, he can now do that. He gets 10 grand a year to do that. It's not a lot of money, but it's money. Um, it opens up opportunities for people. It would mean that People could retire early. People could change careers. And the other thing is like a lot of people, like when people talk about the, pro the poverty trap is that, you know, sometimes there are huge costs to taking up a job such as relocation. And if you don't have access, like, you know, sometimes people just go to their friends and family or credit union, uh, credit union, loan shark. But yeah, yeah. And sometimes it doesn't work out as well. Yeah. And, you know, poverty traps are real things. And the only way to do it is really enabling people to do it and a sort of a for uh, lack no, of better but word, also here's the other thing it's very hard to live on 10 grand a year yeah of course it's next to impossible like if you live in north leitrim mm -hmm. or somewhere that has the word the cost of living is cheap you could probably get by on 10 grand okay not with a lot of short change but you could get by yeah. you're not going to get by living in dublin on 10 grand yeah so the idea that people are just going to sit in the 10 grand and be happy as larry because you're removing all the other f benefits. You're like literally wiping everything else out. This is it yeah. for everybody. It means that you're going to go out and get another supplement mixer somewhere. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, which will get taxed. Yeah. So, you know, you're basically pushing the country towards a full employment system. And you're sort of bringing the volunteer or what's in America is called the non-for-profit sector you're actually creating it in a way that it hasn't really been created in this country. We have it, but it's kind of a bit mismatched. You'd actually be creating a huge new sector doing this. Yeah. And it also gets rid of the difficulty with fraud. Yeah, because there's none. There's essentially no welfare fraud. No. No. And also, um, and this might sound kind of controversial, but um, it would be... If you did the payment in a really universal way, you would make sure that um, the prisoners got it too. Not obviously the people who are in, depending on the crime, but like we're talking low, kind of low priority, non-violent drug offenses. Uh, when those guys get out of prison, they often, one of the reasons they relapse so because of there's such high recidivism is because A, they have no money. And B, they're going into a broken home or whatever. And if they have some cushion to get them out, it won't save them every time. You'll still, people still die, but at least you'll be 
trying to help the fix the problem. You know, the the increasing of corporation tax um, is a solution. Why don't we just enforce the rate? Yeah, it's more about enforcing the rate. But the other thing is, and ta- removing the R and D no, credits. Actually. No, that's the other big R and D credits. But you see, the the other thing is, it shouldn't just be. Not all corporations are the same. Some corporations create more jobs than others. Some institutions that provide services, like consultancy or speciality services, employ a small number of people to do a very expensive, very costly service. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't see the problem with that. Or like a financial service being charged, like a financial financial transaction tax. The transactions on those style companies should be more than like a company that's employing more people. So like manufacturing and more service-based should maybe, you could argue that they should be paying slightly less taxes because they're generating jobs and they're generating things. Yeah, and also their workers are generating tax. Yeah. Whereas a larger firm that employs like 200 highly paid specialists, while there are benefits to have those services in the country, and I get that, and you don't want those companies to just back off. But at the same time, things that contribute mass, and I don't just mean large monopoly companies, I mean small business owners. Those are the things that should be more heavily encouraged. They should be protected, employees, basically. Like yeah. Yeah. Well, like, yeah, I mean, there, there should be a division within our corporate tax regime between domestic and foreign companies. That's the first thing. Uh, and a certain amount of protectionism for you know, for lack of a better example, the small shop or the small hardware store, absolutely. Um, you know, it's... A lot of people like to chase the bargains. I understand that. I also like to chase the bargains. I'm not going to pretend that I don't. I do. We all like a good we deal. all like a good deal, right? But I like to give that good deal to someone I know or someone who's local because, you know... Maybe again, it's just me, but I'm there. I'm going, well, this fella has, you know, children or family to look after and give him the few bob rather than send it to some country I don't know. You know, it, it, it makes sense. Like, and also big box stores tend to wreck local economies. Like, I mean, the Tesco trucks uh, where I grew up have managed to wipe out all the small shops. And some of these shops have been there for a couple hundred years. Just like small, you know, rural country shop. You know, the kind of shop where you could like buy 40 nails and a banana beside each <laughs> yeah. other. You know, those kind of great old hardware stores. The food and stuff. Yeah, but they were great because you could like, you could literally go in and go, I've, you know, I've broken the the, the porcelain bit of my, the top of my toilet. Where do I, do I oh, that guy has it. Because these hardware stores had everything. They had to supply an entire townland. Um, and they were a good price. So, you know, when you lose things like that, not only do you lose, like, culture and heritage, right? And a lot of people don't care about that. I do, but a lot of people don't care. But also you kind of lose the things that make these communities a community, and then they turn into just commuter zones, which are not communities, which are just miles and miles of estates, no parks for kids, just gray concrete everywhere. And it just leads to suburbia and all the problems that come with suburbia, you know. Um, you know, prescription drug abuse, drink driving, you know, all of the things that come with just endless miles of like soulless suburbia. I would sort of advocate for definitely when it, when it comes to like starting to address 
inequality in a kind of less bandaged sort of it feels like we're just trying to make up for something that's not working like we're sort of supporting a system i don't mean just like a sort of financial capitalism or whatever like that and i don't mean in a general way but like if you're gonna have social schemes that are trying to raise the bottom up or to make it easier to transition into a what we for lack of a better middle class it's got to be a genuine thing you can't just sort of keep people eking out on a small thing and the thing about a living wages it's going to go right back into spending anyway yeah of course it is yeah um i think the thing about income inequality and again the reason i don't like the phrase is because there are other things that have to happen you can't just like i'm all for raising the minimum wage but that on its own doesn't actually fix anything you need to actually get into the structure of the economy if you have a transitory economy how do you regulate that how do you make that work for both the employer and the employee? You have to think of both. Because yes. if you don't have any employers, you don't have any employees. They, they have to work in conjunction. Um, you know, high minimum wages and a universal income in conjunction will create a good pay packet for individuals. Low corporation tax, good infrastructure make a good deal and a good bargain for employers. Yeah. That's what social partnership should be about. Social partnership should not be about government bribing senior union officials to fuck over smaller union people. You know, that's what it was. We, that's not what we want. You know, like it, it's too easy to just demonize all corporate guys as you know the bernie madoffs no, we all like beating up on bernie madoff it's great yeah. but you know this is one guy like they're not all like him and uh, corporations are also made up of people they're not people but they're made up of people and you have to kind of go okay we need both systems to work here like the, the other way is like when when you hear about sort of privatization uh, or sort of open markets not necessarily privatization but open markets so the idea is that um, something should receive its market value. That was the same logic they used to basically create Irish water. Yeah. Which didn't have a market. No. So they had to create a market. With one company, which has no competition. Yeah. But they created <laughs> that market to lead to future privatization. Yeah. They can protest that all they want. They, they handed it to Ervia who run Borgash. Now, Borgash operates in an artificially created energy market. That market didn't exist 30 years ago. There was ESB, the Electricity Supply Board, who ran all that. And then ESB Networks own the infrastructure, and they all kind of rent space on the line, for lack of a better word. Offering different rates on... Different yeah. rates, gouging people, all the usual. Um, by putting Irish Water into kind of connecting it to Ervia and all that, well, it's obvious. Ervia is a, is a for-profit company. You know, they're, they, like you couldn't have them controlling that asset without the EU coming in and saying there must be competition here. There's a, yeah. They have a competition rule for a reason. Um, 
But that was, yeah, that's exactly what you're talking about. They, they said, oh, there must be open markets. There wasn't one. So they created one to create another set of artificial competition within it. But open, mar open or free market is complete misnomer because certain things are protected. It's just what things are opened up is just dependent on what businesses perceive the margin of profit and what governments perceive they can make revenue off that profit. Now, if you want to talk about an entirely free market, get rid of entire national boundaries and passports. That's a free market. Yeah. Anyone can work anywhere in the world without hindrance of movement. That is a free market. No one people will ever are... go for that. No, of course, because it's insane. <laughs> <laughs> it would damage everything. Yeah, no, but yeah. if you want to like stop beating around the bush and someone's like a free market libertarian, that's exactly what they that's want. the logical conclusion. Yeah. They don't actually want that when you push it. But, but that is the logical yeah. conclusion. Of what so, yeah. So, which is the kind of ironic thing about a character. Like yeah, and like, like if you took the dead hand, the Smith's dead hand theory, that would mean that there was no regulation to protect corporations. And they could literally be sued 365 days of the year for whatever some crazy person thought they should be sued for. Yeah. So, you know. And if they take this in the States, this corporation, there's people thing, that's actually really dangerous because do you remember the famous one about the coffee cup where the lady was scalded? Was it in Canada or is it in Chicago? I, I can't remember. It, she was scalded with a cup of coffee in a McDonald's. Too hot. Yeah. Right? Now, that was bad. And at first, it was like serious burns, right? Yeah. And they, I think they paid her some money. They should have. They should have paid the hospital bills and apologized for the bare minimum. But as a result of the court case or whatever happened there, they had to put the damn thing, warning may be hot, which is kind of obvious, you know. And that then spread to all sorts of ridiculous things like, you know, when you have a shower and you're in the States and you look at the bottle of the shampoo, don't drink. Yeah. Now, I don't know how many people wake up in the morning and go, oh, yeah, I must drink some of my And remember shampoo. to keep it out of the heads of children who can't read yet. Yeah, <laughs> that one too. You're like, okay, but... If you removed all those protections and if you say all oh, corporations are people, that woman was not burned by an employee. She was burned by McDonald's. McDonald's assaulted that woman with a cup of coffee. Yeah. That's an entirely different legal question. And, and, and that's that corporation. That's like putting the corporation in the dock and saying this corporation has assaulted this poor woman with, with a cup of coffee with intent. But don't worry, they use their money as free speech. To, to uh, defend themselves. To, yeah. to discuss the matter with her in great yeah, detail. Yeah, great detail, <laughs> yes, yes. Lots of discussion. Yeah. Um, but I think just to close it out, that if we were to do this income, universal income, that's what you call it, right? Yeah. Universal income. It would take a couple of years, but I do think it could be one of the most transformative things we, we, we could do as a country because we're small enough in population to make it work and it would for, be for residents it would have to be for resident citizens like the criteria wouldn't like obviously three year, just do the three-year residency thing that's what yeah. we do everything for yeah you're yeah, here you, for three years yeah. fine just make sure they don't do it for all irish passport holders because we'd be paying a lot of money no i mean <laughs> I, I actually yeah i mean the the passport holder thing that's yeah. That wouldn't work because no, of course, because there's so many millions of yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously, look, you know, banks know when you live abroad. Like, if you have an Irish bank account, they know when you live abroad, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, if you're living in Scotland and you still have an active Irish bank account, obviously, you're not going to get it because they're going to know you're in Scotland. Yeah. Your bank isn't an idiot, like you know. So obviously, you wouldn't get the payment.
Um, but like, and also with ESTAs, uh, which is a fancy term, this this new electronic payment system that the uh, I think it's ESTA that the EU have brought in and forced all the banks to do, has actually meant that these type of universal payments are very very simple to set up. They're actually not like it's not like you know millions of man hours or anything. It's very quick. You know, it really wouldn't be the end of the world to do it. Um, and to be honest, I think a lot of people who have to deal with social welfare and go through all those paperwork, they would be very, very grateful, you know. Yeah. And also it would remove a lot of the social inequalities around things like, you know, child benefit, which is one of those payments where I kind of go, okay, uh, why isn't that f higher for people who are poor? And why are, you know, Bono's children getting it? Do you know, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me if it's supposed to be a supplementary payment. You know, you'd wipe all those, all those questions would go away, basically. you just wipe it all out. Um, and you'd also wipe out all pensions. Now, that, that's the really controversial thing, is you're wiping out all the state pensions. Well, all the non-contributory pensions. Because people, if they, yeah. want to be able, if they want to be able to contribute part of their salary, if they're willing... Yeah, but wouldn't the government have to get, rid of the, get out of the contributionary business too, then? Yeah. But you, no, it would have to be what, essentially what the... The employer would probably have to do would be whether it's public or private if they wanted a pension to supplement their universal payment it would have to they'd have to actively make the choice to sign that up after their salary or it could be a mandatory part of their employer's contract in terms of public service you know that's what happens in some tech sectors you can decide to set it up or you cannot to i think in terms of public sector you'd have to force it yeah, but I mean, I, I think but it would be a hundred percent paid because right. the two hundred a week would already be there. Would already be there. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. you're you're essentially about maintaining a certain amount of similar mm. continuity of quality of life after retirement, yeah, yeah. and then obviously you'd have like you know disability or accident insurance. Yeah. And also, and also, just just on the, to end on a slightly populist note for Ooh. for the naysayers out there, this would mean we wouldn't have to pay any TDs or senators or presidents anymore. They would get no salary. Well, they'd well they'd have to get a supplement because it, depending on where they're living. Well, they could probably get a living allowance, yeah, but yeah, they, they get that already. Yeah. But I mean, there would be no salary. There would be a, no no more eighty nine grand. Yeah, that would be bye bye. Yeah. So I think if you pitched it on that alone, you'd get like ninety percent buy in. You know. What's uh, what's the other thing? Is it, another another slight thing is a lot with universal payments, which would probably go into people's bank accounts or however however it was distributed. Probably would have to be direct debit sort of payments options. Just like a weekly bouncing, yeah. yeah. A lot of people find that sort of invasive or whether they live or... Th like, we wouldn't have to necessarily go to something like residency cards if that was a stipulation of the qualification. Oh, yeah. But this is for, like, people who like to pick things up in post offices and things yeah. like that? Well, you could you could even do that. But the thing is... Uh, Hang on. No, sorry. So go back to the thing where people find that intrusive. Do people find getting their paycheck intrusive? Well, in terms of what people, like, handing over... Like, remember the... Water charges. Yeah. The, the detailed information that was asked. Mm. People were like, I'm not giving out my PPS number. Da, 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 da. There are systems like in a number of European countries. Yeah. When you move into a new area, you have to go to the local authority and say, hey, I live here now. Yeah, obviously in Ireland that makes no sense because we're tiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah. you'd have to start doing that for if to actually logically put in that payment so people changed address. It was kind of on the onus of them to go and tell. Well, we need national ID cards. I mean, they have they have these new public service cards. You basically just send them out to everybody. I mean, we actually should have national ID cards. National ID cards are a good thing. Um, I know the kind of 
conspiracy people get freaked out. I mean, sorry, guys, the government already knows a lot about you. They're just not too worried about you. You know, like the, the, the state already has huge amounts of information on individuals, the, you know. Well, like one of the things when people say metadata, you know what metadata, like if you want to break it down to what it actually is, it is the information of your private private movements and thoughts that you supplement in your life and the like information. Mm -hmm. People don't talk about it in that way, but that's, that's like it, yeah. it's not the stuff you necessarily lay out in the form, but it's the stuff that sort of supplements information about that form. Like yeah, can, but it, it's like the contents of your phone bill when you just see a big long list of figures. You rang this person for this many minutes and it costs two cents, you know, yeah. or two euros or whatever. And you know, if you're a phone company, it's very easy to find out who that other person is. It's, or like the phone book you can start, like. Yeah, it's not hard. Know. Like, um, So yeah, a lot of information is already out there. National ID cards are, are just a good sort of generalized security measure too. You know, we kind of, we do live in a world now where having them isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world. Um, and also, you know, uh, it's good to be able to prove who you are and, you know, I'm this person and this is me and, you know, never been terribly freaked out by it. Okay. Um, we will be returning, uh, hopefully soon with either an episode on civil war politics and the use of polling or an interview with a special guest. Now, we don't know which one's going to happen first, but we will let you know. I'm, I'm fingers crossed for both of them, really. Fingers crossed <laughs> for both, exactly. Fingers crossed for both of them. And uh, that's it for me, Jack Kavanagh. And me, Ben Simmons. And if you have any questions, you can email us at spoilyourreign at gmail.com or on Twitter at spoilyourreign.